While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And it is the 11th episode of our show. Not quite as wonderful a number as 10. Every every episode is just as important to me. What? Wait, you don't have a favorite child? Nope. I love all my podcasts equally. What other podcasts (laughs) do you love? Do, uh, no, just just all 11 episodes of our show I love. Well, we haven't recorded 11 full episodes yet. We're just starting the 11th episode. We, it, the podcast might disband. When does a podcast the become a podcast? One. Does it become a pod does it become a podcast at the point where you start reading that book? These are heavy <laughs> questions that are going to decide policy. When does a podcast become a podcast, Andrew? No, I don't. I don't think a podcast is a podcast until you are exporting the edited audio. <laughs> I don't. I don't like your liberal views. I don't think <laughs> I can measure up with that. <laughs> but yeah, this is about books, I guess. Yeah, right? each re- each. God, I do that every week. Every week. Every week. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> and I think it's because I'm anticipating the R in the word read. I think that's what my brain's doing. I'm jumping ahead. Because um, we read a book each week off our shelves or off of our, out of our back catalog. In our e-shelves. Our e-shelves. My electronic shelves. <laughs> my electric shelves. Um, and we share it with the other person. And, and we with share you. it with you. Yeah. I was getting there. Listening. Oh, I was getting there. Yeah. Uh, and I want to thank you to the punch. I want to thank all the people who've been listening thus far. And if there are any newbies out there, welcome to the train. Welcome to the book train, the book yep. bus. This is the local making all stops. All stops. Express to Mars. Wait, <laughs> no, it's the local. It's the local to Mars. <laughs> Why are we going to Mars? Because I read War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Oh man, that was a killer segue no, that I almost don't. ruined <laughs> by not noticing what you were doing. No, but see, it's funny because you then ruined it by pointing it out. You big jerk. <laughs> Oh my god. That was a perfect. That was really good. Oh, I was no. I was impressed. Great. We're getting really good at this podcast, Mark. We're, we're getting there. I mean, we still kind of one step forward, two steps back. <laughs> <laughs> Sooner or later we'll get there. Oh my god. All right, HG Wells War of the Worlds. Yes. It is a science fiction classic. It was published in 1898 continuing our tradition of reading books written in or around 1900 which is three episodes strong now including this one i guess i didn't realize that we were doing that um and kind of going back to our our dune episode we're reading kind of proto versions of certain genres i think or early versions of certain genres i think you know we read dune which is kind of modern sci-fi and we read Turn of the Screw, which is a ghost story, and then uh, even last week with The Wizard of Oz, that's kind of an American fairy tale, right? Right. Um, so 
it's interesting because when H.G. Wells was writing, I don't think the term science fiction was a thing. And he actually called them scientific romances. <laughs> which it's not a romance. <laughs> that I much. mean, is this is was a romance the only kind of fiction back then, or is that no? What? I wonder if that's a holdover because I know some of the Shakespearean plays, the later Shakespeare plays that aren't quite comedies and aren't quite tragedies, get called romances. Okay, so maybe that's some homework that we can do to figure out what where that word comes from and why it is what it is. I don't know. Yeah, and I and I read that this is one of the earliest if not the earliest books that deals with mankind fighting off like an extraterrestrial invasion, is that right? That is true. Um I don't know why I said that like you were tossing it to me in the local <laughs> news. That is true, Andrew. I'm here. Actually, we should talk about You're, that too. We we should have somebody in the sky, just like a a hel- guy in a helicopter up there reading some books. <laughs> yeah, the book looks good from up here, guys. Back to you, Craig. Back to you in the booth. Oh my god. Um, so yeah, it's from what I understand, it is the first book to tackle an extraterrestrial invasion, um, and there's two sets of circumstance that kind of set that up which we'll come back to after we kind of sum up the book but i want to let i want to toss them out there for people to think about so one is that at around this time we knew mars existed we'd been kind of studying it for about 300 years it's like the 1600s when i don't know if it was galileo or who it was that kind of figured out that stuff in the sky was not all stars some of it was planets you know that's a whole big thing and there were there were some findings published in the 19th century that were later debunked, but not by the time of the writing of this book, that intimated that there might be people living on Mars. They were telescope. There were people looking through telescopes, and they were seeing these uh, what got mistranslated from Italian as canals, that are the like the rivers. That people mm-hmm. think may be, you know, former waterways on Mars or whatever, right? And because of the translation, uh, English-speaking scientists kind of interpreted that at the time as the possibility that there might have been people up there who could have made them. Um, so, the idea that there might have been people shaping the the face of the planet, so they couldn't prove or disprove either way. Uh, and I think that's part of part of H.G. Wells's bag, even though he did write a story about time travel is that he was still grounding it in science that he knew at the time and then like carrying it away fancifully if that makes mm-hmm. sense so this this um post dates the time machine i think then? it's the second book i think time machine is his first book and yeah i'm not super familiar with his entire his entire like canon i guess his entire body of work but i know time machine is one big one and this, this is another one Oh, um, The Time Machine was 1895, and then he wrote The Island of Dr. Moreau, which is a Whoa. book about cat people, from what I understand. Okay. Uh, then he wrote The Invisible Man, and then... These are all big. And then War of the Worlds. And then the next two, I don't recognize. The First Man in the Moon and The War in the Air. Um, okay, I don't know those. But, yeah. So he, he was, wrote all those over how, how long a span of time? Uh, eight, time Machine was 1895. And War of the Worlds was 1898, and in between he wrote mm-hmm. Island of Dr. Moreau and The Invisible Man. So people, people today suck. Like, 
You want to you want to just ruminate like, on I, that for a second? Yeah, just like think like the Beatles recorded all their albums in like ten years uh-huh. or less than that. Like, why why aren't we step up our game? These past people are totally putting out more good stuff than us. Hey, we put out a podcast every week. That's true. It is a every seminal week. book podcast. Well, at least we're doing it. You know, future book podcasts will look back on us. And How many years was it since the last Guns N' Roses album before Chinese Democracy? It was a long time. <laughs> Wait, why is this about Guns N' Roses? Uh, now? I tried to pick like a, a good in joke about something taking a long time. Okay, yeah, that's. I couldn't okay. think of a movie, and I don't really care for Guns N' Roses. So I figured that would be a good joke to make. Swing and a miss, but hey, you know, God, thank you for thanks for trying. Tune in in five minutes when Andrew makes a joke and then talks about it being a joke, and then <laughs> grades it because that seems to be the theme of this podcast. C minus. Oh man, thank you. <laughs> so anyway, so the two bits of context being that. Around the writing of this book, there was some science out there that was being treated as actual science that there might be men on Mars, or at okay. least might have been people on Mars of some kind. And then the other thing to think about is a little more thematic, and it's that in the late 19th century, starting, you know, middle of the 19th century and, and before, but in European imperialism was like at its height at this, mm-hmm. at this time. Um, you have the French Empire coming out of the Franco-Prussian War, colonizing Africa and Indochina and all sorts of other places. Britain was all over the place um, and considered to be one of the leading powers in the world at the time, um, which comes into play over the course of this book. Uh, so that sense of invading a foreign land was something that was prevalent throughout all of Europe and becomes very important in this book. So, so is he he is he making a call like morally one way or the other like is he saying Britain is bad for doing this to these other countries or like what is his comment on that? <laughs> we'll get uh, we'll we'll talk about it in a second. All right, all right. Um, Don't let me take you out of sequence. No, here. it's okay. So the book is written in this kind of first-hand report from an unnamed protagonist, which I think is a really interesting perspective. Um because it's this guy who just kind of happens to be there at all the right times, you know? He's not a super heroic guy. He is some sort of philosophy writer. I guess that's a job in the late 19th century. Like, you sit in your house and look out your window and, like, philosophize about things. We call those people unemployed I, today. We I call think. They, them, they still exist. but Yeah, we call them, like liberal arts majors is what we call them. Um, Welcome to this podcast. Uh, And he's like, he has a friend who works at, uh, what is it called? Not a planetarium, an observatory. Okay. Um, And they see these like lights or something emanating from Mars. And you can kind of see in the telescope that like something is like gas being, uh, shot out of Mars, which is odd. And then the cylinders crash into the Earth in England. And uh, the first one lands, like, in the town that he's in. So he's, like, there, and they go inspect it, and these weird things, men, whatever, come out of the tube that has landed in the ground. Mm-hmm. And then they have this heat ray, and which 
You don't even. What's neat about it is you don't see the ray. You just see things light on fire, which is both <laughs> by neat I mean horrifying. <laughs> uh, the scene where he first sees that happen is like really intense. Um, and I know uh, my sister had actually written in uh, on our Facebook page, which is something that people can do if they want to comment on episodes. I'm trying to give us give yeah. you. Don't, you don't have to be related to us to give us feedback. No, you don't. <laughs> and I, and but I'm also I'm trying to be more proactive about letting people know what we're recording so that they can kind of ask questions or you know whatever. Sure. And one of the comments she had was that does it kind of stand up at, against modern science, science fiction or, or horror? And that's a question we can kind of come back to a little later, I guess. But moments like this where, you know, it's just one guy kind of watching the horrific demise of people in his town by weapons he can't possibly comprehend, is, it's pretty intense. So do you, have, do you have an example of a specific passage that kind of illustrates yeah. this? Um, it's in the chapter, I think it's chapter four, called The Heat Ray. Which is, <laughs> I kind of love, love his chapter names, actually. They're, they're really wonderful. Um, and so the cylinder that these Martians arrived in has like created this big pit in the earth. And the humans, the people from London, are kind of walking up, and the, the cylinder's opened, and there's these little Martians. They're not little, but uh, the Martians are kind of moving around, and they look like giant heads, kind of. Not like human heads, but they just kind of look like big membranes, in a way. Oh, so we actually do see the see the aliens. It's not like a, not like a Cloverfield monster or an HP Lovecraft thing where you never actually directly look at any of the unspeakable horrors that No, no, no. He actually gets of. he gets a lot of uh really good looks at them actually. Um and yeah. All right. So anyway, so the the kind of awfulness of some of these situations is so they're going in there to potentially communicate with these aliens. And they get a little too close, I guess. You know, they're not quite sure why. And then all of a sudden, stuff starts lighting on fire. And he's not quite sure why, even though it's clear that the Martians are controlling it. Mm -hmm. So it says, Forthwith, flashes of actual flame, a bright glare leaping from one to the other, sprang from the scattered group of men. It was as if some invisible jet impinged upon them and flashed into white flame. It was as if each men were suddenly and momentarily turned to fire. Then, by the light of their own destruction, I saw them staggering and falling, and their supporters turning to run. I stood staring, not as yet realizing that this was death leaping from man to man in that little distant crowd. Jeez. Yeah. It's pretty gory. <laughs> like, Well, and I guess that would, that would probably be how a laser gun kind of thing would actually work if, if one existed. No, he like, doesn't. Like, it wouldn't... It wouldn't necessarily be like visible light. That <laughs> yeah, that's actually true. It would just kind yeah. of. It's isn't there that thing that DARPA has worked on where it's like they put a big satellite-looking thing on the top of a jeep and then it like makes you feel really hot. That's a thing. I don't. I don't know. But now that I know that that exists, I really don't want it to <laughs> exist. <laughs> um. So yeah, I don't quite. He does. He captures that terror of like not knowing what's going on mm -hmm. very well. Um, and from there, things kind of spiral out of control. The first tripod is built, which is kind of the iconic three-legged walker from War of the Worlds. 
that has influenced, I think, every other thing like that that you've seen in science fiction since. <laughs> um, countless universes that I can think of kind of employ mm-hmm. that. There's, a, there's an interesting spot where he talks about how the Martians don't use wheels anywhere. It's like this weird tangent that he goes on. Because, like, the whole thing is written in the past tense of him having survived it. So he has the luxury of leaning on this quote-unquote science oh, okay. from their so do, analysis. Do you get the feeling that he's reporting it to anyone in particular, or is it just like a journal or a diary he's, of events or something? He's writing it for posterity. Like, he is okay. talking directly to the reader, but it is for the sense of providing the most complete, coherent account. Um, and it's interesting, along the way, he actually references other people who have written about it. Um, and whether or not they are accurate accounts of what took place. Um, but yeah, he, the, the tripods are crazy because they're, you know, they're huge and they walk, they're faster than you think. Like any depiction you've ever seen of like giant alien walkers, they're usually lumbering, like think Star Wars or yeah, know, right. anything like And all he talks about is how they're super fast <laughs> and they run like crazy drunk crabs, basically. Like they just kind of like skitter if that makes sense. And they sure, kind of like yeah. bound in a way that's sort of terrifying. Um, and it kind of goes from there with just total destruction. Like they can't communicate with these things. Um, the He talks a lot about how the Martians are unable to, to cope with Earth's gravity, which is probably why they build these giant machines sure. uh, to move around in. And for a while, they're just kind of walking around and you're not sure what they want, but uh, mankind starts, you know, shooting at them with cannons and stuff once the first p- people die. And only one of the walkers gets taken out with a cannon. And then from there on out, the Martians start using this thing called black smoke, which, like, all of the tripods get together. And, like, it's basically mustard gas. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's awful. <laughs> and there's lots of depictions of you know, people's bodies being covered in black dust and having died from asphyxiation and stuff like that. Um, So mankind basically has no chance. No chance whatsoever. And there's this passage where he says, uh, this is really early in the book, so it kind of colors the rest of, of what you read. He says, Before we judge the Martians too harshly, we must remember what ruthless and utter destruction our own species have wrought not only upon animals such as the vanished bison and the dodo, but upon its own inferior races. The Tasmanians, in spite of their human likeness, were entirely swept out of existence in a war of extermination waged by European immigrants in the space of 50 years. Are we such apostles of mercy as to complain if the Martians warred in the same spirit? So that sounds like a a pretty clear-cut judgment call, then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Going back to what you were asking earlier. Mm Mm-hmm. There's this sense that, you know, we are no match for them. They are a species above us, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Right. Um, so the book kind of just follows this unnamed protagonist from cal- from one calamity to the next. Um, they march on London. There's a couple chapters where he tells, he talks from the point of view of his brother. Like his brother has a- accounted to him what happened in London, you know, when they yeah, got I was there. Yeah, I was just going to say, is the, the synopsis I read mentions a brother, and I was wondering how that was worked into the story, like, narratively. It's, they never meet each other over the course of the story, 
but all of a sudden there'll just be a chapter where he says he ta- he's getting ready to talk about how they marched on London and then uh he's like my brother was there and this was going on and my brother ran from here and did this uh and i think it's he wells kind of justifies that by saying well you know this guy's writing this story after it all went down so he clearly conferred with his brother and here's what his brother told him happened well, and it, it sounds like it's just a kind of a convenient way to get the story to a place like geographically where it couldn't otherwise be like it's yeah. just a, it's a convenient way to do that without breaking up the the narrative um, flow that he's or like the point of view that he's trying to tell the story yeah from. exactly so okay so you have survivors then how like how did that happen like if humankind has no chance against this invading force then how is this guy and his brother how are they both alive to tell the tale anyway okay so the he does what the kind of convenient element of the of the protagonist and i guess his brother also but is that like not only is he in the right place at the right time to experience all of this he manages to escape like by the skin of his teeth at every like every event he just makes it out you know, there's a whole sequence where he's trapped in a house and the Martians take the guy that was staying in the house with him but don't see him. Like, it's like little stuff like that. Um, and it turns out that the Martians are actually, like, harvesting us, of course. Okay. Um, which is super gross. But So do they just get enough and then leave? Or No, 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 no. Um, so it all, it all happens in about two weeks and not all of the Martians show up. It's kind of an expeditionary force, or at least they have to assume it is kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember exactly how many walkers show up. They they talk about at least 10 of them at one time. There were 10 cylinders that got shot to Earth from Mars. That's like that's how they travel because they don't have spaceships. They like okay. are in these tubes and then they go in a big gun and then they get fired at Earth. So they can't get back to Mars? If they can, they would have to build equipment to make that happen. Okay. Um but of course, mankind is screwed, and mankind can't do anything because we hit them with cannons, and then they came out with their mustard gas equivalent, and then you know we can't fight that, and then they start capturing people and drinking their blood because that's what Martians do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what ends up defeating them, and the first the first idea that you get that this is how they're going to get defeated is there's this plant that starts growing all over the place, this red vine or the red weed he calls it. Mm-hmm. And it it kind of crops up wherever the black cloud has kind of dissipated and turned to dust. And it seems to be like a natural Martian plant. And it, you know, grows really quickly whenever it touches water. But then basic earthly bacteria get to it and it dies. Okay. Like it has no immune system to combat uh, microbes, basically. Mm-hmm. Microorganisms. And then after, I guess, it's two weeks, either 12 or 15 days, I can't remember. Uh, and things are pretty well screwed. Like, London is decimated. It's not fully destroyed, but almost everybody's gone. Uh, the man, the protagonist, meets another survivor that he encountered early in the book and then got separated from. And that guy's sort of going a little crazy. Like, his whole perspective is that they're going to have to learn to live basically like the way that humans treat ants or cockroaches. Mm-hmm. Like, there's just a nuisance that is around. Um, and he's like, we're just, that's just going to have to be the future. We'll, we'll do it. And then maybe one day we'll, we'll rise up again or whatever. 
Um, and so he leaves them and he's like, no, I, that guy's crazy. I can't do that. I have to go find my wife. That's the motivating factor that he has for you know, moving from place to place is trying to find his wife. And then he sees this Martian tripod like not moving, making a bunch of noise in London. And it's dying. And all of the other tripods aren't moving. And what they discover from, I guess, autopsies or whatever they do afterwards is that all the Martians succumbed to disease because they had no antibodies uh, to fight infection and bacteria on Earth. So it's Mm -hmm. this kind of mankind did nothing to save itself, basically. It was just that the Martians couldn't actually live on Earth because they had, they had been living in this sterile society for so long that they couldn't hack it. And yeah, so so basically, life on Earth can eventually go back to normal-ish, but the threat of more invasion is always kind of there. Or what's the what's it, what do you take away from they it? They do. They, it does end with that sense of like we have to keep this in mind going forward. Like we are not at the top of the food chain and that is like, we need to stay humble is basically Mm -hmm. like the message. Um, And that I think is, is specifically related to the imperialist angle that we are talking about. I was just going to say, this seems pretty specifically pointed at, at European and I guess British in particular imperialism and, yeah, and what that country needs to keep in mind, or else the sun will set on the British Empire. Yeah, and guess what happened? <laughs> um, well, and none of the cylinders land outside of London. Like that is the only place that they attack. So of course, is there any any explanation for that, or is it just like they identified what appeared to be the most the, powerful city, and then they went for that? He does, like, yeah, he doesn't actually say if they know. Um, but I think from the point of view of the book and from an English writer at the time, uh, the idea was that it would the story would probably mean the most if it took place in England. Oh, yeah, just like how Independence Day took place in Washington, D.C. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Um, it's just like that. And I think it's, a, it's an interesting mix because not only is he attacking colonialism in this way, um, but he's using... Not quite nascent, but still growing and growingly accepted principles of Darwinism and evolution. You know, um, he talks about the idea that perhaps the aliens were not unlike us, but then evolved beyond our own basic needs. You know, mm-hmm. that they become nothing but a head and hands is the way that he describes them. So it's <laughs> like you have your brain, and then you have whatever digits you need to operate tools. And then they augment themselves with all these different, with the walkers and there's a couple other like, not quite robots, but like for lack of a better word, cyborg suits that they go in to get their tasks done. Um, So So do you, I mean, do you get the impression that, I don't know, like if we, if we advance too far and we rely too heavily on this technology that eventually will, will be like brought down by, Possibly. There might be... By something as small and like insignificant as, as disease or what. Yeah, I think there, there might be a way to read that, especially the, with the Industrial Revolution being contemporaneous. Like You could look at it yeah. that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's specifically with the idea that microorganisms took them down is respect for 
the chain of evolution is what it's saying. Mm-hmm. Um, that what you know, like oh, that is exactly what you just said. No matter where you are <laughs> on that food chain, like you are still part of that chain, and you are still affect can be affected by it. Um, well, and that I mean that the way I guess the way that the aliens get taken down by by microorganisms kind of reflects how the aliens were taking over earth. Like you can think that you are on top and that nothing can beat you, but then you can be, you know, defeated by something that you didn't even, you didn't even anticipate, you know, something that didn't even come into your calculation. Well, and that works on both ways, right? The idea that the Martians were destroyed that way, but humanity in England was destroyed that way. Like there, not only is there something lower than you quote unquote, that can destroy you. There is something above you that you can't even fathom yet. Or why can't there be something above you that you can't fathom yet? You know? Um, so it, it is, it's, I don't know. It it has an air of, yo, you better be humble because (laughs) you don't understand. You go South real fast. Yeah. And you know, this idea that if we, you know, take a look at what we have accomplished, why can't, someone else have accomplished more or, you know, something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a good book. I like it a lot. Um, and then the, all the kind of cultural touchstones of this book, I was, I couldn't help but think about them as well. Like, yeah, I was, I was going to say, cause last week we talked about the wizard of Oz and I feel like it's place in the pop culture canon, like the book, the wonderful wizard of Oz that Frank Baum wrote, that you know that book's place has kind of been usurped by the movie adaptation, mm-hmm. and so the War of the Worlds has you know it has like the Orson Welles, um, like the radio, yeah, the radio play, play, and like the story around it, and there have been some film adaptations too. So like, do you think that the book still stands out above those? Does it like offer something different? Is it more like if you're going to pick one adaptation of the story? would the book still be the most important one? I think so, only because it inf- it informs so much else um, and kind of paints a really clear picture of the idea of extraterrestrial life and, you know, the evolution of science in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the radio play, which I need to go listen to, I've never listened to it. I've only read about it. Yeah, I think the story about how people responded to it has kind of become much bigger than the the play well, itself. And I know there was um, the theater director Ann Bogart did a quote unquote revival of it after nine eleven, mm-hmm. which was apparently extremely powerful. Which I'm not surprised because yeah. that is you know contemporaneously knowing that about the not contemporaneously contemporary for me. Like thinking about that now and reading this book now, I can't help but think about that, especially Mm -hmm. knowing that about the radio play and and how it lived on the idea that like you don't what's interesting is is watching this tragedy unfold in England and recognizing that they had very different means of communicating with one another and how slowly news traveled and how Mm -hmm. like if aliens showed up right now, there would be about a thousand Instagram photos of them instantly. (laughs) (laughs) Like everybody would know. Like just think about, just think about like hurricane Sandy. Like, and that was like a whole big thing where people were talking about, you know, some of those photos were doctored and yada, 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 but people were talking about it 
up to the minute of what was taking place. Yeah, I mean, it was that way with Hurricane Sandy. It was that way with like the Arab Spring. Yes, was a, mm-hmm. was a big was a big thing. But yeah, like news news like that travels instantly now. Yeah, and um, so if somebody started hearing on the radio that the aliens had <laughs> invaded, like they're not gonna they're not gonna instantly think it's real. Well, first, what like, are they doing listening to the radio? Let's talk yeah, about that. I mean, let, let's assume that they are. They're like tuning in to like wait, wait, on eighty the years old yeah. or something. Yeah. They're cooking a late brunch on Saturday, and they're listening to NPR. And then, yeah. I mean, I, should we, for people who don't know the story, I guess, should we like? Yeah, basically, yeah. Orson Orson Welles did a radio play adaptation of the War of the Worlds, and the the story goes that people began tuning into it, and they did not know that it was a reading of a story. They thought it was a news report because I guess that was how it was presented. It was presented as a news report. It was in 1938, I think. And he said at the opening, this is a play, like this is a drama. But then people were catching it midway through, of course, because it's radio. And they were, apparently the aliens had landed in New Jersey, and then they were marching on (laughs) New York. Um and people were calling like the operator being like is this real what's going on and then the operator didn't know of course cuz he wasn't listening to the radio but he was getting all these people calling him freaking out about aliens so like that's kind of how that playing a literal game of telephone about fictional aliens in new york <laughs> um and that just reminded me of the fact that reading this book would have made a lot more sense if i lived in england <laughs> Okay. If only because he talks a lot about different villages and towns and, like, the way they are marching. And it took me about a third of the way through to really get a sense of where they were moving on the map. Like, because I have no idea where some of these small towns in England are. And, like, when he drops county names or whatever, like, literally no clue. Sure. So... All I know is that London's there, and I only have a vague sense of where <laughs> London is. Um, and a lot of this book happens to the south of London, and I I don't really know like where that is. Um, and when you start naming towns, so a working knowledge of geography would have been beneficial. Yeah, is what you're saying. Yeah. Um, and maybe I have a slightly greater appreciation for locations in England now. I don't know. Okay, because um, you've seen them all destroyed by aliens. Seen all of them destroyed. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know. What else am I supposed to talk about? Anything? I don't know. We've talked about the, the themes and like the, the social commentary. And I think we've talked before on the show about how the very best science fiction uses fantastical premises to say poignant things about the real world. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, check. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and actually, oh, that's what it was. There was a, there was, speaking of NPR from two or three minutes ago. There was actually an episode of Science Friday where they were talking to a bunch of authors and some scientists who double as kind of science fiction writers and stuff like that about using science in fiction and using science in narrative and kind of going into that difference between fantastical science fiction and science fiction that's grounded in some sort of present day science. Mm-hmm. Like we were talking about that with the Dune episode where it's set so far in the future that he can kind of make up some stuff. Sure. Right. And get away and get away with it where in a way that's different from like star Wars where it's just like, it's, you know, knights in space, it's wizards in space, (laughs) basically. 
um, <laughs> where this is very much you get the sense that he is trying to infuse this with as much real science as possible so that he can both comment on the real world, I think, in a way that's slightly more legitimate and kind of unnerve people more, if that makes sense. Yeah, like the the greater legitimacy he adds to the science of it um, is what lends it kind of its awfulness, I think. Um, and then also, I don't know, I forgot to say this earlier, but the Martians in, you know, he's one of the first people to talk about like straight up Martians and that kind of influences a whole bunch of fiction. Right. And apparently one of the other lingering influences of his depiction of martians is the idea that mars was kind of on the downturn which is why they came here in the first place okay which is very much related to imperialism and and how countries kind of expanded here on earth um the idea that you are running out of resources or you need more resources and then you're going to expand um so this kind of dwindling kingdom on mars or whatever it is that was the planet was cooling and they were probably running out of stuff. And so they need to come here and drink our blood. And okay, that's interesting, you know. So think about that, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what else. To All say. right, War of, the, War of the Worlds. I think that's think that's it, right? That's probably it. Just watch out for okay. those Martians. <laughs> well, um, thank you as always for listening to us every week because we know that you do come back every week. And if you don't, what are you doing? What are you doing? <laughs> Get your priorities straight. <laughs> Stop making your own book podcast every week and listen to ours. You over We've all gotta just all everybody come together under our banner. Um right now. If you would like to surrender to our book podcast, uh, you can send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. You can uh, tweet at us. We're on Twitter at twitter.com slash overduepod. And we are also on Facebook at facebook.com slash overduepod. And our social networking feeds are where we you know announce that the new episode is up. We announce what we're going to be reading we uh, put up some other links for people who will like books. Um, last week for the Wizard of Oz episode, I put up a link to the Kindle edition of the book when I discovered that it didn't cost anybody anything. So, you know, if you want to be on the ground floor for stuff like that, uh, you should really follow us, like us, whatever the uh, term that the social network uses. And if you've already <laughs> done that, but you want to support us a little bit more, you can rate and review us on iTunes. We have a link to that from the website overduepodcast.com. Uh, we'd greatly appreciate that. You can also support us monetarily for hosting costs and other things like that by <laughs> picking up one of the books through our Amazon links. Uh, we try not to clutter up the website with ads, so we've included handy-dandy links to some of these books. If you either listen to an episode and now want to go read one of those books or you want to read ahead uh, for one of the next two weeks and then... Uh, have some things that you're screaming in your car as you listen to us be idiots uh, while you <laughs> listen to the podcast. Because uh, I understand that that is a very viable scenario. <laughs> yeah, no, totally do it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just if you have bookish friends and they like podcasts, um, the way we're going to get bigger is by word of mouth. So we would just be so appreciative if you could recommend us to a friend or if you don't like us, maybe you could recommend us to an enemy. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, you know what? How whatever makes the subscriber count go up, we don't really care <laughs> we, who it is. Yeah, we're not judges. We're not. We're only here to judge books, not listeners. Don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, thank you for listening, and we will be back next week. Later. You guys have some really specific ideas about the kind of cat you want, huh? I do, specifically. I've wanted Why an orange you... cat named Larry for a number of years. Why do you want specifically an orange cat named Larry? I don't know. I think Larry's a good name for a cat. and for it's a pretty good cat name. For some reason, I think he's an orange cat. I don't know. I liked orange cats. I wanted an orange cat when we got Newman. But um, the orange cat in there was, like, fine, but he was kind of aloof, and Newman seemed more into us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, be be open to to other things if one of the cats is particularly cute. Okay. <laughs>